Welcome to episode two of series nine of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. In this series of the podcast, we will explore the importance of skills, reskilling, and continuous learning, as well as the shift to on-demand and personalized learning. In this episode, my guest is Giampiero Petrolieri, who is the Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSEAD and an expert on leadership and learning in the workplace. Giampiero has chaired the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on New Models of Leadership and is enlisted among the 50 most influential management thinkers in the world by Thinkers50. Giampiero's work explores how and where people develop and sustain the personal foundations and professional abilities to exercise leadership mindfully, effectively, and responsibly. His studies highlight the psychological, social, and cultural functions of leadership development, and his teaching methods provide an example of how to perform those functions purposely for the benefit of individuals, organizations, and society at large. His research has appeared in academic journals, media, and business journals like the Harvard Business Review, where five of his essays have been included among the ideas that shaped management in the last decade. Giampiero's article in the Mitzlow Management Review, Learning for a Living, really captured my eye with his call to action that learning is work, learning at work is work, and we must make space for it. Really striking a chord. In our conversation, Giampiero and I discuss why organizations are struggling to embed a culture of lifelong learning. We look at the differences between cognitive learning and socio-emotional learning, and why organizations need to make room for both. We look at the role of technology in supporting the development of skills. And Giampiero provides examples from companies like Schneider Electric and Lego, who have developed culture and environments where learning can thrive. And finally, Giampiero and I look at the role of the Chief Learning Officer, and whether it should sit within HR or report directly to the CEO. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested or involved in learning, skills and leadership development, either from an individual or company perspective. So that's business leaders, CHROs, chief learning officers, and anyone in a people analytics, workforce planning or HR business partner role. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 9 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. This podcast series is sponsored by Degreed, the workforce upskilling platform for one third of Fortune 50 companies. Degreed integrates and curates all the resources people use to learn, including learning management systems and millions of courses, videos, articles, books and podcasts, using behavioural and data science to analyse everyone's skills and to automatically personalise career development based on their jobs, strengths and goals. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Giampiero Petrolieri, Associate Professor of Organisational Behaviour at INSEAD to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Giampiero. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to your background and, and, and current activities? Thank you very much uh, for having me, David. Uh, sure. Um, my professional background is somewhat unusual. I started actually training as a medical doctor and as a psychiatrist and then made a transition from um, a mental hospital to a business school, which is, uh, you know, somewhat different, although you <laughs> encounter a lot of neurosis in both places. I went through coaching and consulting and then I got into academia. I've been a management professor at INSEAD for the last 15 years. I specialize in leadership and learning. So what does that mean? I research leadership development, especially in this day and age where, you know, things are changing very fast. People are more mobile, business more digital. 
I write and I speak about leadership development and I also practice it. So I work with a number of companies on leadership development initiatives and workshops. And at INSEAD, I run the Management Acceleration Program, which is the school's flagship program for emerging leaders. Great. Uh, well, I think we'll probably touch on all of those areas today. Um, you, you talked about, you, you write a lot. Um, I think we'll start there because one of your recent articles, I think it came out towards the end of uh, last year, actually, in Mitzlow Management Review, Learning for a Living. Uh, le- learning for a Living has rightly grabbed quite a lot of attention, uh, and rightly so. So I'd like to start the conversation there. The byline to the article is learning at work is work uh, and we must make space for it. Please, can you describe to our listeners what you mean by this and the implications for both the individual learner and the organization? Yes. um, If you look at business right now, um, we talk a good game about learning. We talk about learning all the time. I I like to say that learning is the new loyalty. You know, usually organizations um, recruited talent by saying, you know, if you make it here, you'll have a great career, you must stay a long time, we'll make you, uh, you know, one of the best and then we'll keep you and we'll give you a great career in life possibly. And these days that's completely disappeared, that, you know, employee value proposition has really disappeared, but it has been replaced by the promise of learning. And uh, the employee value proposition tends to be if you come here, you learn more, you learn faster than if you are at um, a competitor. And companies invest a lot in learning. They don't just um, talk about it, but they also put their money where their mouth is. And what I was interested in the article is exploring a little bit of a discrepancy that you see if you work with business, which is we talk a lot about learning, we invest a lot in learning, but then people feel that learning isn't quite happening as much or as fast as they wish to. And this is independent whether you talk to executive and they say, you know, people are really still a bit resistant to learning, resistant to change, or whether you actually talk to talent and say, yes, I would really like to invest in my own learning, but really our organization isn't set up for that. You know, I have to do it in my own time. And so, you know, one of the things I was trying to do in the article is saying, is it possible that this discrepancy between how much we want and invest in learning and how much learning we really actually managed to get in business isn't um, isn't really because we have bad intention, but it's because we don't really understand, you know, we don't really look at what does it take to learn and where do we learn? Just like for anything else, see, for any other process, we often really look at what does it mean? What outcome are we trying to achieve? What is it that we're trying to maximize? How do we do it more efficiently? And the idea that I was trying to put across was that learning at the end of the day is not a singular monolithic thing. There's more than one process that goes under this um, you know, very general and nebulous banner of learning, and probably we'll get back to that. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, since you wrote that article, we've had the, the COVID-19 crisis, and a lot of organizations we, we're speaking to accelerating programs around learning, particularly, obviously, digital learning as well, which is quite interesting. But, but what is it, what, what do you think that, why are organizations, what is the gap between the intent and the execution, effectively, of learning? Why, why are they falling down and, and what could they do to, to remedy it? Well, let, let's go to the core of it. What we understand as organization, as organizing, is really antithetical to learning. Organizations, frankly, are simply not designed for learning. So we have a 20th century design 
which is really kind of follows principle of scale and efficiency. You know, yeah. organizations are designed for efficient performance, trying to address a 21st century problem, which is um, innovation, talent development, learning. These are all learning process, by the way. Innovation, talent development are, you know, the organization and the personal size of a, of a learning process. So, you know, I think unless we sort of change the way we view and understand organization, then it's hard to really focus them on learning. Now, you know, and then having said that, I also want to say I'm wrong in the sense that people often say organizations are inhospitable to learning. And actually, I find it inaccurate. Organizations are great at learning, but at a particular kind of learning, which is incremental learning, day in, day out, doing things a little better than we did them yesterday, you know, really squeezing those efficiency and financial margins. But what they find is that because they're so successful at incremental learning, then that gets into the way of transformation. Because learning isn't just getting better at what you already know how to do. Learning is also trying to figure out what matters now. This is what we were good at yesterday, but is this what we need to do now? And the kind of transformational learning requires not just putting aside, but actually subverting the logic of efficiency, which is, um, which is a religion. In, um, in the way we design and run organizations, frankly. It's, uh, it's blasphemy to say that you should actually challenge the logic of efficiency if you really want to make room for development, for innovation, for, at the end of the day, learning in its broadest sense. And I, I guess it's a two-way thing as well. So, you know, the organizational construct needs to adapt. As you said, it's, it's still, in most cases, 20th century constructs for a 21st century world. And I guess for the for the individual, it's a, it's a little bit more empowerment as well, isn't it? So organizations should be there to help people learn, but also help people learn the skills that the organization needs to be more successful in the future. Um, and I guess that's where we have a bit of a problem, I guess, that needs to be closed. Yes. You know, and I think, you know, often I get asked, uh, you know, maybe we should rebrand learning. And, and I actually don't think, the issue is rebranding learning. The issue is debranding it. It's actually looking at learning as a, as a pluralistic thing. And yeah. as you were saying, there's one, more than one kind of learning. Certainly, I, I look at learning from at least two different perspectives. There's two categories of learning that are important for any organization. One is the learning that makes you more efficient. What we know and what we're good at, we've already talked about. And as you were saying, is another one is the learning that makes people freer. Now, these are two really different kinds of learning. And if you dig into the practice, again, the byline you were talking about earlier, the idea that learning is work. The learning that makes you more efficient unfolds through a process of deliberate practice. So there's a skill that you want to really isolate and then practice again and again and again in a context of increasing difficulty with as much feedback and as much support as you can in order to achieve higher levels of mastery. Now, that's one kind of learning. There's another kind of learning, which I call in my own work, reflective engagement, which is the ability to actually remove yourself, question what you know, and be present to what's emerging. It's the ability to look at what everyone looks at and see it from a different angle. Now, that's really 
in some way antithetical and yet complementary. I mean, at the core, learning is a paradox because it's the opposite of deliberate practice. Instead of doing the right thing better and better, you have to question why is this right and who says. And what you need is not feedback, but often what you need is space to actually think for yourself, as you say, to be free, to be empowered. And see, one process of learning, the deliberate practice process of learning, needs feedback and affirmation. But the reflective engagement, which is really what allows individuals to then maybe reimagine a process, reimagine the business, come up with something new, requires requires space and, and requires almost an invitation to, to, to challenge, an invitation to subvert. There was that, um, there's, um, you know, I often joke that there are really two kinds of um, slogans for learning. Uh, one is, um, this is how you're going to get even better. And the other one is everything you know is wrong. And very often why your organizations struggle is because they need one kind of learning and they try to do the other. Because then, of course, people become very ideological. They tell you, this is really the most impactful learning. But there's no such thing as the most impactful learning. The most impactful learning depends on the need you have. If you have a need for bringing people together, for strengthening the culture, for more efficiency, then what you need is deliberate practice of a certain values, of a certain norms, of a certain skills. But if we have a need for inclusion, for innovation, for, for empowerment, then that is actually going to go against the outcome you want. What you need is really allowing people to be present and free to what else might be, to why we are doing things, and maybe question what we take for granted. Um, and so, again, it really depends where your organization is at and what you're trying to achieve, the kind of learning that then you want to put into practice that you want to emphasize. But because we are often used um, to deploying the, um, the hammer of um, deliberate practice and skills development, then every learning problem looks like a nail, you know? The constant challenge, I think, for, for organizations. So you, you said it in the introduction that you do work with organizations as well. You know, can you give us an example of, of one or, or maybe more than one who you think are tackling these challenges well and what you think other companies could learn from them. Yeah, I mean, I think any company that's not ideological about one kind of learning, but it actually uses both the kind of skills development and transformational learning um, in, um, in the best ways. An example, and uh, yes, this is a company I have um, you know, had the pleasure to work with, for example, Schneider Electric Global Energy Company, and what they're doing with learning is really interesting because it combines the strategic imperative, which is digital transformation, many other companies. And so tie all their learning initiative to the, to the imperative of digital transformation. How do we acquire the skills to work in a digital environment? But also at the same time, the, the, kind of transform the, the personal imperative of how do we allow people, not just at the top, but throughout the organization, to really understand the transformation starts with you. That if you want to see an organizational transformation, each and every person has to question, why have we, I done things this way? And uh, how might I need to change my own way I look at a business problem, the way I practice my daily work, so that I can actually offer um, and you know provide innovation or offer a practice to 
you know, offer an example to, to others. And again, what I find interesting is not a specific best practice, but it's the fact that the whole learning strategy um, is anchored both to an organizational strategic imperative and yet is personalized to each and every individual. And I think that's for me, you know, every organization I work with that I think does learning, that really focuses on learning, doesn't make a choice between serving the organization strategy or allowing the individuals to grow. They actually try to figure out how do we bring these two outcomes as close as possible? How do we make them synergistic? Um, you know, sorry to use a business password. No, 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 that's, that's fine. And that, it's it's interesting, um, that we podcast that we actually published this week, so it will be two weeks ago uh, when people are listening to this with uh, Diane Gerson, the CHRO at, RB, at IBM. She was talking about how... The, that what the, the, the real light for them was when they actually brought skills and learning together. So as you said, the strategy that the organization needed, the transformation that was going on within IBM, she brought the person, people responsible for the, understanding the skills together with the head of learning. And, and then she said, magic effectively happened. And as you said, it's, it's about tying that organizational imperative of transformation, as, it, as you talked about there at Schneider, by, but by personalizing it for, for individuals as well. It, and I think, obviously, the technology is now there to, to help us to do that personalization much better than we had in the past. Look, I think almost every organization in, that's really doing learning seriously is, I think, in this particular moment, is focusing on three pillars. How do I make it personal? How do I make it practical? How do I make it digital? And, um, and I think every time you are not touching, and, and very often the personal is the one that we still struggle a little bit with. Anytime you're not um, you're not really having solid foundations on these three pillars, your learning tool is a little bit um, out of balance. And of course, you need good data to do that. So if you're going to personalize something for an individual employee, then you need to understand, you know, what skills have they got? You know, where where, for example, does do they want to take their career within an organization? What are the opportunities within the organization? How can we help them acquire the the skills to, to, to do that, to develop themselves as an individual, but also to help the organization close some of the skills gaps that they've got. And I think Schneider Electric has been doing something, I can't remember the name of the platform now, but they've, they've kind of brought that mobility and learning uh, together to help all, to help employees develop their careers within, within the company as well. Yes, I do think you need data, but I don't think you just need data. You also need dreams. Yeah, I think you need to understand the skills people have, but also the ambition they have. And you need, just like you need to understand the capabilities you have as a company and also the vision you have. At the end of the day, learning is, is not just making your, again, I go back to this, it's not just making your, you know, giving you the skills that allow you to close the gap um, between A and B. It's also about giving you the space where you can uh, figure out whether B is really where you want to be or whether you should actually be going to C because since you were thinking about B, the world has changed uh, pretty dramatically. Um, and, uh, and I think, of course, that requires a much more, you know, a much closer attention to emotions, to social environment, to context. You know, I think to personalize learning really means to kind of dwell with the psychology and the culture around you, not just with the mechanics of the skills you need to acquire so that you can reach a goal faster or with less pain. 
we'll come back to some of the technology that's supporting um, the whole development of skills a bit later, actually. Um, but something I think you, you've written about is, um, you know, and it'd be great, I think, to, for listeners to hear. Can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between cognitive learning and social emotional learning, as, as you call it? Are we talking about hard and soft skills here or is it is it more complex than that? Probably, or maybe it was the other way around. I, I don't know. I think it's orthogonal to that. I think any skill, if you if you really scratch the surface, because you know, remember in business, we are not concerned about skills from a theoretical, from an academic perspective. We are concerned about skills which will have impact on uh, people's lives and hopefully to, into their company. So we are, we are talking about skills applied efficiently and effectively at a certain moment by a certain person at a certain, um, at a certain time. So what I try to get at with this distinction between cognitive and social emotional is that anytime you're learning a skill, you need to learn the building blocks. You know, how do you do something and what are the steps um, to do that? Um, but you also have to understand the context in which people might react, for example, differently if, um, just to use a very common example, if a man or a woman does the same thing, people might not have the same reaction they should but they don't so can you understand how that skill might have a different um, impact can you understand the context in which you might work slightly um, differently why is that skill designed in a certain way i'm going to use a simple example okay not from business Um, just this week i took my son to try fencing and um, and i was looking at how i love watching learning and I was, you know, I had a chance to observe Israel lesson and the instructor. And I could see the dance of the two kinds of learning. Part of the lesson was um, trying to figure out, as he was trying out, can he hold this sword a certain way? Does he get that, you know, you have to wear a mask? There's all the technicalities of this is how you do this. You have to keep your feet in this way. Why? Because you have more balance and then you can actually, you know, be more efficient, make more points. And then there was a whole other layer. Understand there's a certain discipline here and uh, you know we comport ourselves in a certain way. And I realized it had nothing to do with you know winning your fencing bout. It has to be this is a sport in which we're gonna be handling a weapon. Yeah. And unless you learn the re- and in a way part of that learning that was beginning to happen there this is how you use power responsibly and i think in business it occurred to me in business exactly the same here's the skill you need and how to use more effectively and at the same time in this context how do you make sure that you have the discipline to use it responsibly the former is cognitive learning has to do with you know intellectually and and very physically do you understand what you need to do but the other one has to do with your morals, with your emotions, with the culture, with the norms. Um, and very often as a business leader, especially, you're not just upholding certain morals. You're innovating, you're doing things others haven't thought about or done. You're also shaping mores. And that process is a socio-emotional process. It's not just a cognitive process of what works. Um, it's also a process of saying, this is right and this is wrong. This is why this is appropriate and this is why this is inappropriate. So, I mean, to use an example that's quite in vogue at the moment, you know, we talked about leadership in a crisis, and we've talked about 
um, you know, we haven't, but but there's lots of there's lots of talk about the importance of empathy. So the social emotional part would almost be the empathetic way that you use the skills that you have as a leader to communicate maybe something across to a group of people, it might be a team, might be the whole the whole workforce. Um, and if you use that social emotional skill, the empath, empath, empathy part, you're actually more likely to it's more likely to resonate. So so you know how to communicate as a leader, but to do it empathetically means that you're more likely to have resonance and, and maybe get what you know what you want, which is the right response, perhaps. I think it's empathy. And I think it's also imagination. It's really kind of taking a very different perspective on your skill. You know, instead of asking, will this work? Asking, what will this mean? For a leader, for example, you might say, look at the data. We are going to be working from home. And uh, it shows that on average, people are a lot more productive. And then when you scratch, and again, it, then it's where, you know, your data, data is dangerous without a theory, right? That's one thing academia can, can teach, um, you know, other domains. And then you find out that for some people, that average is really made by two categories of people, people from whom working from home actually allows them to be undistracted, more focused, more productive. And people will struggle because home is not a safe place or because maybe they don't have a comfortable place to work. And so suddenly that um, invitation to work from home, which you have um, so, which you've been so upbeat to tying the productivity, actually really doesn't mean the same thing to different people. To a category of people who have the fortune of having a safe and comfortable environment, what it means is a liberation. Oh, great, I have to take the tube again. But to a group of people who don't have those privileges, then what that invitation means is constraints. And I think to have the, to have the capacity to, to understand what your, you know, what your initiative, whether your initiative works is important, but to have the capacity to understand what it means and for whom, then it's an act, as you say, of empathy, but it's also an act of imagination because you sometimes have to be able to to almost empathize or imagine yourself in the shoes of different constituencies. Um, that's, you know, I think that's a good, um, em- empathy is a, is a big building block of that. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting over the next few months and, you know, as the, the, we seem to crisis will be with us for some time by the sounds of it. And it'll be interesting, you know, as you said, there's been lots of reports about people being more productive at home. I am going to be the one who's letting the company down. People are being yeah. laid off. I still have a job. I'm going to, I'm going to really work for, you know, my colleagues for, for the company. I mean, you know, again and again, we see in a crisis, our most pro-social um, impulses take over. We sacrifice, we try to help the person next to us. We try to help the institutions we hold dear, sometimes at, uh, at a big personal cost. And then you see that cost, um, that cost uh, you know, down the line when people start feeling disconnected or burn out. Um, and I think that cost has to be acknowledged. Coming back, and actually quite interesting, actually, because we've been talking about um, virtual working, um, you know, and obviously technology is, is important in, in enabling us to work virtually, but it's also important in enabling us to learn as well. You know, yes. How is the role of technology, um, what is the role of technology in supporting development of skills? How is it evolving? Um, both, you know, and it, Let's you know. Let's not just focus on people working virtually, but how is technology really draw, helps helping support and enable uh, some of the things we talked about earlier around um, learning and skills? I think the biggest thing that's changing 
and, and it requires a change in the mindset of the leaders who use technology for learning is, in a nutshell, I think technology is changing from a tool for delivery to a space for, um, for a conversation. I think that's true in, in, the same, in the same way that is true for um, you know, other parts of work. I think it's true for learning. You know, I think we have um, often had an understanding and, and I think perhaps a prejudice that technology is great when it comes to doing, you know, the cognitive stuff, just, you know, really take content in a very um, well-produced, efficient way and transfer it from expert to non-experts. Um, and now what we're learning is, no, tech maybe can do more than that. Tech can actually provide the space where people come together to question, to challenge, to think about. And so I think one of the, one of the things that we are, that we're experimenting, I think a lot of um, companies are experimenting, is how do you broaden the role of technology in learning? Uh, I think we had already kind of got down the whole knowledge transmission through tech, bite-side learning, and, um, and all of that. But can technology be more than a pipe, than an efficient pipe from some place where knowledge is to some place where knowledge is, um, is needing? Um, I mean, if you want, from, uh, you know, technology, I think, needs to move and is moving from, you know, a, a mechanism from knowledge transmission to a tool from knowledge creation. And I think in that way, learning itself as a whole needs to, you know, needs to move more towards that, you know, a space where people create and innovate as opposed to a space where, you know, they get indoctrinated, they absorb what other people have sorted out um, and think it's good for them. Well, obviously, you're a professor at INSEAD. We're six months into the crisis. How, how is technology supporting you in, in, in teaching your students at the moment? Well, immensely. I think we are obviously, you know, we are obviously using Zoom extensively for our, you know, we, we transition in a week and we learned that there was actually a lot more things that I personally didn't think could be done well, like a case discussion or, uh, you know, sharing of personal experiences through you know, through a platform like Zoom. But then we also saw that there was a possibility for a third space between, uh, you know, the the classic, you know, video conferencing platform, Zooms or Teams, um, and um, and the amphitheater or the workshop room. And we actually, here at INSEAD, we started this Go Live room, which are, um, you know, a lot more um, tech-heavy ways of bringing people virtually in the same um, in the same room and it's um, and it's a virtual classroom and i am surprised by the extent to which you can um, really foster the sort of social learning which is of course at the center of what i do because leadership development isn't just a matter of me telling you how to lead that by definition that would make you a follower not a leader leadership development yeah. is about me accompanying you as you discover know what your purpose is and how you can have um, the most impact and so we have really been discovering and practicing ways to find spaces where we can do that we're also really now working a lot with dual presence teaching where some people are in physically in the room and other yeah. students are connecting through virtually and of course this is not just about the professor but it's about all of us really dancing um, you know with um, with what being present means. And, um, you know, obviously for a lot of the work I'm interested in, I'm not going to lie. I think coming together is always going to be most impact, 
impactful. And in fact, I'm worried. I'm worried that physical gathering becomes a privilege of the few. Um, and uh, and I, you know, I'm I'm hoping we we can avoid that because, of course, then you have all kind of side effects of being together and the formation of bonds and 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 all that. And I think it's a great risk that we move to an environment in which uh, you know privileged senior executives can still come together, gather, form bonds, think about you know who they are and what others need, and then everyone else is sort of. Um, brought together in a slightly more diminished or, or should I say precarious way because one of the challenges we face in technological space it's too easy to disconnect and yeah. um, and precarious relationships although we might adjust to them they're never fully satisfied they're never conducive to to full growth but anyway um, that's just a long way way of saying that we're experimenting with making technology as a space because the temptation is immense to then have all this technology and just stick to what we knew. Again, we are, we are really trying to kind of take our own medicine, which is what do we need to unlearn? And what we yeah. need to unlearn is that technology is simply a transmission mechanism. It works for a lecture. No. Technology can work for a conversation if you're able to have a conversation. Incidentally, that's also true in a classroom, which is a technology. You can come in a classroom and think, oh, that's a great place for me to come and tell people how great and smart my ideas are. But actually, that's not really the best use of people coming together in a classroom, is it? It's really figuring out how do we make sure that we have the conversation that generate the most insight. And so, you know, I always go back to, yes, technology is obviously, obviously technology will improve, but it's really our intent and our capacity that, builds learning that builds transformation is not is not the tech is not the tech and i think it's our ability to resist um it's our ability to resist the temptation to narrow learning to its um, minimum common denominator of knowledge transmission uh, i think that that really would be not just inefficient it would actually be counterproductive a lot yeah. of the companies I've worked with over the last 20 years have really, really tried to move away from this narrow view of learning. And they're really trying to use learning more broadly, more strategically as a place, not just to indoctrinate people, but to actually let people get the skills and the talent and, and strengthen the talent they need to go and get stuff done. And, um, and I think the risk is that we set ourselves back 20 years. That's technology is not going to take us back. It's leaders that might take us back if they can challenge prejudice, if they can resist um, anxiety. Um, I mean, at least that's my view. Yeah, leaders need to adjust and embrace what technology can do, but not be restricted. Be restrictive in the way they apply learning, of course, as you said. And you talked a bit about environments there, actually. That was kind of the next question I was looking at, really. You know, you mentioned obviously you work with again work with lots of different organisations. Nick, can you give us some examples of organisations who are really good at creating the right environment for learning? Yeah, so I think there's two kinds of idea learning environments. For you know, we talked about at the beginning that kind of incremental learning, getting better, deliberate practice. You want a boot camp. Yeah. Okay. As close as possible to the challenge you're going to encounter with people that 
push you, challenge you, give you feedback so that you can actually improve those skills at a faster pace than if you were in the wild. Um, and I think almost every organization in some way, shape or form is good at the book thing. You know, whether they do it in-house, they outsource it, you know, but in a way, business itself often is a book company service. Yeah. But then there's another kind of space which is really optimized for the learning we talked about as transformative learning. The, you know, the, the sort of reflective engagement, being present, being purposeful, and there you need the playground. Now, I'll tell you, there's a company that, because of their nature, are, are very good at thinking about this and making space for that. It's Lego. You know, and they really are very good at creating learning spaces, which are like a like a playground. The minimal amount of structure that allows it to be possibly safe enough, but but also ambiguous enough that you can make what you want of it. You know, a great playground. You know, it's got a few structures, but structures that can be used in different ways, that can be recombined, that you know can be imagined. No, no, that's not a climbing frame. Is um, is a bridge across um, you know across two countries, and I'm going to cross them. And I think that's uh, you know they they do a lot of work thinking about how to create learning spaces where people can really bring their imagination, and then they can actually put their imagination into practice into either changing a process or, uh, or uh, you know, developing a new product. And I think more and more organizations, um, and certainly that's the kind of work I more personally do, and I've been really encouraged by how many organizations said, you know, say, we want to get past the bootcamp. And bootcamps are great and you need them. And, um, and it's not a matter of kind of, you know, building playgrounds, you know, where all the bootcamps were. No, it's not. It's making sure that you have enough of each and that the right people are going to both. Because, you know, if you send, you know, children who need to play, uh, and by child, they use it as a metaphor for, you know, a person with potential. Um, you know, if you send that kind of learner to a bootcamp, then what you'll see is they'll shrink. Their creativity, their imagination will shrink. But if you, you know, if you send people in a bootcamp to a playground, what you will um what you will see is a lot of um a lot of incompetence so you know if you were training um someone to master the safety processes of your plant you wouldn't want them to say okay well just go and try to figure it out you'd want them to have you know the most efficient possible transmission of the knowledge and practice of the skills they need then you will want a little bit of do you understand why we're doing this? And this is why I, you know, I go back to what we were talking about earlier. I think what's important is not to say when it is or when it that. It's to figure out how do you build the two kinds of learning on each other. Because you know, once you clarify your purpose, then you will need the bootcamp that allows you to kind of get the skills to fulfill that purpose. And then after you're done in a while, maybe you need another round of learning that makes you question whether it's still what you wanted to do or what the company needs given this time. And so in many ways, you can think of this as a figure of eight, right? Where we, where we often oscillate between periods in which we need more incremental learning that lets us consolidate and efficiently pursue goals and periods in which we need more transformational learning in which we question Know, what is our purpose and um, what best serves our constituencies? I mean, in many ways, the crisis we're being through now 
is um, a great example of a moment in which we're very, very tempted to kind of stick to our knitting, to really kind of just hold on to what we know. And yeah. maybe it's, um, it requires us the opposite, to question, you know, what, why is it that we do things and how can we do them differently? Um, you know, I don't want to say it's an opportunity because it would be offensive, but I think it's actually needed. Well, I think I've lost count in the number of people who said to me in crisis, there's opportunity. But I think, yeah, I think I'm like you. You have to remember this is a health crisis and, you know, you know, nearly a million people around the world have, have died from it. So it's, uh, you know, and it's going to be with us for some time as well. And on that on that note, you know, has 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 the COVID-19 pandemic, has it advanced a culture of lifelong learning? and a growth mindset, or has it delayed progress in your opinion? And I guess it's probably not a simple yes or no. It's probably, it depends, doesn't it? I think any crisis of this nature, which really raises anxiety, becomes an enormous challenge to a culture of learning, to a culture of experimentation, because what it does is it makes us defensive. And, uh, and that's functional. You know, if you are in a life-threatening crisis, to be defensive isn't, strange it's actually to be it's actually to be normal at the same time you know crisis you know at the same time it is a crisis like any other crisis which is it faces us with the challenge that we have the need for learning we have opportunities for learning because things are a little bit upended and we don't have the resources and that's where leaders really come into play you know what my way of defining leaders is people who can learn and help others learn just when we are tempted to cling to what we know and what we do best, to cling to our prejudice, to cling to our practice, to cling, to cling to our, to cling to our traditions, a leader is someone that says we have all the reasons to not learn, and yet let's pay attention to the little ways, to the little things we are seeing in this moment, which might be the beginning of the future. Yeah. Because. So the crisis, the answer is clear for the crisis. The crisis will definitely focus us on what we risk losing from the past. If there is any acceleration, if there is any innovation that comes, it will come from leaders that say, let's remain focused on what's emerging of the future. But there will not be the crisis that does it. The crisis will bring anxiety. Leaders were able to contain their own and others' anxiety will be able to restore our faith in the future. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see how it pans out. I mean, I think one thing we're seeing with the organisations that we're working with, principally with people analytics teams in, in large global organisations, there does seem to be, and it's quite nice in a, and it's good, that, that a, lo a lot of the focus seems to be around employee well-being, employee safety, um, you know, and, and one hopes that that will continue as the crisis continues to unfurl. And in the future, as you know, these teams are, are supporting their organizations and reimagining what that organization could look like, what the work future workplace will look like in the future. And, you know, and hopefully, you know, and I'm sure it will be learning will be a, an absolute core component of that. Because if, as you said, if, if transformation is accelerating because of the crisis, and it probably is in some places and not in others, then, then learning is going to be such a absolutely key for organisations and individuals moving forward. Yeah, you know, and that's you know why, in some way, that article you mentioned at the beginning was titled that because to to learn is to be alive, and yeah. in many ways, there's nothing 
like an existential crisis to remind us that life is precious and we are human beings and the way to stick around a little longer is to figure is to learn what we need to do to to make it well we're going to look forward if we're on to the last question now we're going to look forward this is a question we're asking all our our guests on the show in in this particular series so it's two prongs so i'll start with the first one is you know, what will be the role of learning and development in 2030? So real opportunity to peer into your crystal ball here. <laughs> You're the first to ask me about 2030. I think possibly it will be even more central. I mean, I think if the trend continues of uh, more uncertainty and more volatility, then, you know, learning in many ways will become uh, not just a um, a, a central part of organization learning will become a way of organizing a way to constantly uh, either hold on to or renew your culture and capabilities so you know maybe one of the things we will do is really not to think um, are we well organized for learning but um, are we learning in a way that makes us well organized and then an extension of that um I've read a couple of pieces recently from the, the big strategy consultants like BCG and McKinsey advocating that the chief learning officer move out of HR and report directly into the, the CEO. Um, and I was just wondering what your thoughts around that. Do you, do, is that something that you're seeing? I mean, I know you're working with a lot of companies or is this just, is this just strategy consultants trying to get themselves some work? <laughs> In my experience, it's mixed. I mean, and I've, um, you know, I'm researching in the, the role of um, leaders of learning right now, and I work with a lot of companies, and in my experience, it's really almost 50-50. They you know, report to the chief HR officers, but there are companies where they do report, I mean, classic cases, you know, the first chief learning officer, which, um, you know, was a general electric doctor role that Jack Welch, um, Jack Welch invented, and, and the chief learning officer reported to him, you know, when Steve Jobs hired Joe Podolny at Apple, you know, made him report um, to himself. There's many companies where, you know, that's a signal that learning is really central. And there's many other companies, as you say, where he reports to the chief um, HR officer. Look, I'll be honest, what I think is going to happen is there are going to be, as many things probably, um, a lot more polarization than we see now. So there will be organizations where learning becomes uh, really instrumental. So it's really just whatever is positioned, it's really just a tool. It's, um, it's really just a, a tool for to implement the strategy. It's, um, it's just another piece of machinery. And yeah. I don't think um, you know, that's the most strategic or the most transformative use of learning, but it's certainly a way to use learning. And I think you'll see a lot more of that. Uh, you know, either you can make the business case for this piece of learning or we shouldn't be doing it. And at the same time, I think we will see um, other chief learning officers, you know, in some way embodying a different philosophy of learning that will make learning a lot more radical. And learning will really become not a way to support leadership, but a way to exercise leadership. There will be CEOs that say, hey, the chief learning officer is really, a, you know, in many ways, a central component. It's one leader that that really upholds a center principle of the leadership of the company. And if we want to be a company that, you know, as many companies now, you know, one of the things that we are seeing, especially among the largest companies, a process of hybridization, right, where they say we don't just want to, you know, achieve um, 
this particular business results, but we also want to be a social force. We want to help people develop. And, um, and the chief learning officer will have a huge role to play there. And so the ability to, and they will really become almost a peer of the CEO, if you, if you wish, in, um, in holding that balance between the instrumental and the kind of, you know, sociocultural purpose of, um, of business. So I think we'll see them, um, you know, I think we'll, we'll see chief learning officers going opposite directions, either becoming another tech or uh, really becoming a beacon of humanity in, um, in business. And I guess it lends itself to what you spoke about right, right at the outset around learning being the new loyalty. Yes. Uh, and of course, you can exercise loyalty by kind of blindly obeying, or you can exercise loyalty by being um, responsibly subversive. And, yeah. um, and I think we will see you know, very efficient followership or responsible subversion from, um, you know, from learning executives in, in different companies and in different contexts. And this is not going to be just a, you know, a function of they and who they are. It's also going to be a function of, you know, the company they're in and, uh, and the situations they find themselves in. I know on which, I know on whose side I am. <laughs> I think we're on the same side on that one, sir. Jean-Pierre, thanks for such a fascinating conversation. Thank you for your time. Um, thank you for being a guest on the show. Yeah, How can listeners stay in touch with you, read more of your work, follow you on social media? Sure. Um, I don't have the easiest name to spell, have I? So my website, all my work is there, all my academic research, all my essays, all my work, if you're interested in my speaking, is gpetrieri.com. That would be G-P-E-T-R-E. I G L I E R I dot com. That's the same as my Twitter handle, G P E T R I G L I E R I on Twitter, or you just find me on LinkedIn, Giampiero Petrieri, or you look me up on my on the inside webpage under faculty, you you'll find me. Oh yeah, we'll put some links. Uh, we'll put some links. We'll hyperlink it so people can can come straight to you. So. Uh... Jean Piero, thank you very much. Uh, good luck with the new academic year at INSEAD as well. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to speaking to you again. And good luck to you too. The more learning we have, the less luck we need. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the My HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there by going to the My HR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Kat Kennedy, the Chief Experience Officer at Degreed, where she was employee number three. So don't miss that one. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.